Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. In verses 1 through 8 this morning, as we look through those, there's a repeated phrase three times. If it pleased the king, it pleased the king, if it pleases the king. And so the title of the message is if it pleases the king or it pleased the king. We're playing off of that idea. And this is really an inductive type message. Now remember, deductive is where you're looking at it, you're kind of breaking it down, you give the main idea, you give all the points, you walk through it, you come back and repeat what you've said. It's kind of like you write your papers, tell us what you're gonna tell us, tell us, tell us what you told us. And so this is more of an inductive. But we haven't done inductive very often, so I'm gonna cheat a little bit and spoil the end because I assume you probably have already read it anyway. But before I give you the main idea, before we put it up on the screen, imagine the text that we're going to read in your mind. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, in the king's presence, bringing the king to serve the king the wine that is before the king. And when he brings the king the wine that he's serving him, the the wine that he has chosen that's supposed to fit, the king looks at the cupbearer and says to the cupbearer, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? Why does your face look like you're in a bad mood. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Now, your one job is to make sure everything the king drinks or tastes or eats or whatever is in perfect condition, and all of a sudden, you have presented this to the king, and the king looks at you and basically asks the question, what's wrong with you? You're in the presence of the most powerful man in all of the world, humanly speaking. Are you nervous? Well, I imagine in the king's mind, he's thinking, was there something wrong with that wine? Was there something wrong with that food? Are you trying to poison me? Should I have your head cut off now or should I wait till later? And in the response, we see Nehemiah there, scared, perhaps trembling, shaking, because he knows he has to give a response to the king. So he responds, oh, king, live forever, which may be the best way of saying to the king, there's nothing wrong with your drink. There's nothing wrong with the food. It's all okay. And then he proceeds to present the ideas that he's been praying about, fasting over, thinking about for 90 to 120 days. It's a four-month span. We don't know if it was at the end of one month and the beginning of that four-month period or if it was at the beginning and the end. So it's 90 to 100 days is the best range we can give you. And he's nervous. Have you ever been nervous before you presented something to somebody? Has there ever been news that you had to tell somebody that your heart began to race a little bit, your pulse began to increase just a little bit, you felt the shakes perhaps even as you were telling, your voice began to crack, maybe it was in your first presentation in communications class where you're up in front of everybody and you don't like to do this and all of a sudden you're so nervous. You see it? You feel it? That's the scene that we have this morning. And what we're going to learn this morning, our main idea of our text, which we'll come back to at the end again, but the main idea of our text is when God calls, God provides. Now be careful. Because just because you ate Mexican last night and woke up this morning with some grand scheme to save the world, that doesn't mean God has called for you to do that. So I'm not saying every crazy idea that we have in our heads, God has called us to go do, and we immediately then have to go do it. I'm saying to you, when God calls you, when God says to you, you're my servant, I'm going to use you to go do this, then God will provide everything you need to go do that. So the key to this sentence is when God calls. Now in our text, we know 
that God has called. We see that throughout the reading of this book. And when God calls you, God provides. Even if it's scary, even if it seems impossible, even if it seems like it can't be done, God will supply every need according to his riches and to his mercy. God will rescue his people. In this, we're going to see three applications. We're going to see three things that Nehemiah does really well, and he provides an example for us here. So we notice his positive example in this text, and we say, ah, that's good. We should do that. Sometimes when we're reading Old Testament narratives, we notice a negative example in the text, and we go, ah, that's bad. We should never do that. So this morning, we've got some good things we're going to notice, and the good things are dependent prayer, a deliberate plan, and directed praise. I was having fun with alliteration. I was just trying to, to, to voice Wearsby since we're working on Wearsby's library there. So anyway, let's read the text. I'm just going to read a couple of verses at a time. So I'm not going to have you stand this morning as we read the text. So look at verses one and two. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing that you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So first we notice the month. From Chislev to Nisan is a period of four months. 90 to 120 days of praying, of fasting, and of waiting. From November or slash December to March slash April, there had been 70 years of exile. It had been over 70 years since the temple had been rebuilt. And at this point, there were still no walls around the city. And so he's sad. He has sadness of heart. There's an application for us here as well. Has God not answered your prayer, perhaps your prayer that you've been praying for 70 days and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, it doesn't work, it's all over. Here's a prayer that's been prayed for 70 years of exile and 70 plus years since the temple had been built. And here, all of a sudden, a constant 40 days, or 90 to 120 days, four months of praying this prayer, and all of a sudden the opportunity is gonna arise now that he's gonna present this. There's a waiting that's important. Believers waited almost six weeks between the resurrection for the power to come at Pentecost before they went out and did ministry. Paul waited in prison and wrote many of the letters that we benefit from in our New Testament. As you study here, at Cedarville, many of you, God has placed a call in your life and that call to go is a call to prepare. And so you are preparing now. You are developing academic excellence. You are developing skills and personality traits so that when you go, you're gonna be able to be used for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's some frustration sometimes in us where we're like, I wanna go do it now. I don't wanna wait. I don't wanna do all this hard work. I don't wanna do all this preparation. I wanna go do what God's called me to do but there's a preparation and there's a waiting that is good. So I wanna to say to you and I wanna to say to myself because sometimes I get impatient, waiting for God's time is not wasting our time. Waiting for God's time is not wasting our time. Perhaps God used the 90 to 120 days to get Nehemiah's heart where his heart needed to be so that he could be used to do what God wanted to use him to do. Perhaps God is using this time at Cedarville 
for you or for me or for others to prepare our hearts for what he ultimately wants to do through us, yet we're not quite ready yet. And so there has to be a humility to say, God, you can do more in one second than I can do in an entire lifetime. I am your servant. I want to wait on you and your timing and your will. And so I'm going to be patient and wait. Now, that's really hard to do. It's really easy to say. So when you get frustrated, just remember the phrase, waiting on God's time is not wasting our time. It says earlier in chapter one that he fasted. Did he fast this long? Did he fast for 90 to 120 days? Probably not. Maybe it was an on and off fasting. Maybe it was a one day a week fasting. I would say to you, all of you ought to try fasting. Fasting is a biblical principle. Fasting does not have to be from food. And some of you cannot fast from food because you have medical conditions that wouldn't allow you to do that. But you can fast from anything that takes up your time. Right now we're in football season. So perhaps it's your fantasy football team that eats up all your time. Perhaps that's not it. Perhaps it's video games that eat up all your time. Perhaps it's social media. Perhaps it's gossiping. Perhaps it's food. Perhaps it's soda. Perhaps, it wouldn't take up all your time, but it's bad for you. So you could fast from any number of things, and you could say, I'm going to fast from this, and every time I crave it, that's going to be a reminder for me to pray for whatever it is I need to pray for. Fasting. We don't know how long you did it. It doesn't tell us. The sadness of the heart. We do know that no one was to be sad in the presence of the king. You remember back, or actually forward one book in our Bibles, to the book of Esther, and in the book of Esther, you remember where Mordecai wanted to tell Esther what was happening, but he was in sackcloth and ashes and wouldn't dare go into the presence of the court because he couldn't in that state. So we understand from that context, looking at what the Bible has told us, that you're not supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. After all, how could you be sad in such a magnificent space in front of such a magnificent person? You should always then have a smile on your face if you're in that type scenario. So if you're sad in the presence of the king, well, that's just a bad thing. You must be a disgruntled servant and off with your head and you're out of here. So that sadness of the heart then creates what he says here, then I was very much afraid. I'm really glad this little phrase is here in this verse because how many of you have ever been very much afraid when God told you to do something? Every time I'm out somewhere or on a plane or wherever it is and I feel the Holy Spirit's prompting to say, share the gospel with that person, it doesn't matter how many times, thousands of times, it doesn't matter how many times you've done this, unless you're just like the extreme extrovert and this comes easy to you, if, there's just this... There's this sense of fear. There's this fear of man that creeps up. I feel it in my own soul. I suspect you all feel it at times as well. Somebody's going to think I'm weird. Yeah, they probably will. And they're probably right. God, if I do this, what are people going to say about me? Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be rejected? God, if I do this, there could be negative consequences. Some of you are going to face really serious situations at work. In the future, you're going to be questioned as to whether you're going to do what's right or whether you're going to do what's wrong. You're going to be in a secular environment and you're going to perhaps have a boss that tells you to do something that you know in your mind and in your conscience you can't do. And you're going to be there before the Lord and you're going to be very afraid. Lord, my faith at this point will have very serious consequences. And here, Nehemiah, in a serious situation that could cost him his life, says to us in a moment of transparency, then I was very much afraid. Now notice what he didn't do. He doesn't do this throughout the entire text. He didn't say, I was jumping for joy because I've got this covered. 
You know the arrogance that we all tend to put on, or at least when we tell the story in hindsight? Here, he says he was afraid. There's an importance in that transparency of being afraid. Notice what happens here. Why is he afraid before an earthly king? Well, that's because earthly kings only see the outside. Earthly kings can change their minds at a whim. Earthly kings can lack mercy and grace. But I want to remind you this morning that we serve the one true king. We serve the heavenly king. And while earthly kings only see the outside, our king sees the heart and knows all of our intentions. Our king can change, doesn't change his mind on a whim, but he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our king extends mercy and grace to all. And where Nehemiah had to wait for an opportunity to talk to the king of that point in time, we never have to to wait for a moment to talk to the one true king. We can go in prayer right now to the one true king. Anytime we need him, he is there with an open ear and a listening heart to hear what we have to say to him. So go to the king, plead to the king, ask the question, does it please the king? Verse three, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Standard greeting, wise way to start, showing respect, and so then he launches in, as we'll see here. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Let's walk through these verses. First of all, ask yourself the question, why did the king care? Why is the king asking the question? Well, perhaps the king cared because Proverbs 21.2 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. Now notice here, as the question comes, what's wrong with you? Long live the king. And then it says, so I pray. Why should not my face be set? the place of my father's. Why did he pray here? How did he pray here? He's before the king. He's standing here. At the end of this, in verse four, it tells us he prayed. This, this is not one of those close my eyes, fold my hands, get down on my knees. I mean, if he had done that before the king, that would have, have had a very different connotation before the king. This is probably a very quick four-second prayer backed up by four months of prayer, but this is probably one of those silent prayers where he just said, oh God, help me, or something of the effect of that that took very little time. But what this indicates to us, it's not so much about the importance of the words or the importance of the posture, so much as it's about the condition of his heart, the posture of his heart and humility, and that his first instinct was to turn to God. So I ask you the question, is your first instinct to turn to God when things happen? Are you so in tune with God? Are you so accustomed to talking to God that you're in a situation and all of a sudden something happens and your first response is, oh Lord, help me through this. Or, oh Lord, your will be done. Oh, oh Lord, may your servant be found pleasing in this sight. I like to call this a Hail Mary prayer. Not after the Catholics, but after football. Like your desperation, you have have little hope. So you line up three or four receivers on one side. You run them all down to the end. Your quarterback throws the ball as far as he possibly can, and you hope something good happens. This is kind of that Hail Mary prayer. Oh, this could go bad. Oh, Lord, help this not go bad. Help this go good. This is what we see here. But I want to point out to you something. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, we constantly see prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer. So I would say to you, Nehemiah walked with God because Nehemiah talked with God. 
Nehemiah walked with God because Nehemiah talked with God. We see prayers recorded in the book beyond the ones we've already covered through chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 6, verse 14, chapter 13, verses 14, 22, and 29. Over and over and over again, we see a habit of habitual prayer that's taking place in Nehemiah's life. And so I ask you the question, have you prayed? Do you pray? Do you pray as part of a habit of life? Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, what a great question. And notice, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, notice in this, that he asked the question, if it pleases the king, he had a posture here. And I wanna, I wanna draw attention to the fact of how he responded when the king asked him the question. The king, he no doubt knows that the king had sent the letters that had caused them to stop building the walls and that's recorded for us in the book of Ezra. So here he's asking the king in a setting to reverse a previous command that the king has given. So as he's asking him to reverse the previous command that the king has given, how does he go about this? He says, why should I not be sad? Because the land of my fathers, he doesn't say Jerusalem. He doesn't, he doesn't name the city. He doesn't say exactly which one it is because he, he doesn't want that thought to be in the king's mind. He says, what about the land of my fathers? They're graves, it's in ruin. And so he responds here with, if it pleases the king, long live the king. This land where my fathers are, it lies in ruin. There's some wisdom in the way he responds here because he could have said, what's wrong with you? And he could have responded with an entitlement and with an arrogance that said, I serve a king that's higher than you. You're really not the king. And my king has told me I'm gonna go rebuild the wall. So I'm going to rebuild the walls and you can't stop me. And what would have happened if he'd responded with that arrogant entitlement? He would have been done. Over. The king would have said, let me show you who's in charge. Instead, he comes as a servant. He comes with, if it pleases the king. He comes with, long live the king. He comes by saying, not this is the place, the place that you sent the letters to, that you stopped the walls. You're the reason this place still lies in ruins. It's your fault. He doesn't do that. He comes with a humility and he says, now there's a wisdom here in how you approach somebody. There's a wisdom here in the way he goes about this. And he comes and he says, oh, if it pleases the king, if it pleases the king, your servant, notice the words your servant here. There's no entitlement. There's a humility. Your servant, if I found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, he gives him a little more detail at this particular time, still doesn't give him exact detail, although the king would have known where he was from, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. So the king said, the queen sitting beside him. Now the queen sitting beside him is interesting. So a lot of the commentaries say that the queen sitting beside him means this was a private event. And because it was a private event, they give Nehemiah wisdom for asking the question in a private event, not in a public matter in front of a bunch of other people, which would give the king time to consider it. Now, that's that's good wisdom, to ask an important question in private, not to ask an important question in public in front of other people. This is good parenting advice, by the way. You don't ask your parents for important things in front of a whole bunch of other people. You have those discussions in private. You'll get that. You'll understand all of that. But here... I look back at Daniel chapter, chapter five, verse two, and I note that the queen was beside the king in that particular environment, and it was a big party. 
So I don't know that the queen sitting beside the king means a whole lot for us. We can't make too much out of that because we just don't know what happened. If pleased the king, not just Artaxerxes, but also the one true king to send him. He says, give him a time. It doesn't tell us what the time was, but he was ready to provide a time. It took 52 days to rebuild the wall. Perhaps he asked to be gone for a year and sent a report and asked for more. He was governor for 12 years. Perhaps he asked for 12 years. I don't know. Some people say that you wouldn't ask for 12 years all at one time. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. It's not important. But the important part for us to know is that he had done the preparation to know exactly how long he should tell him. So that moves us to verses 7 and verses 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, third time it's mentioned, let letters, notice the detailed preparation here, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make the beams for the gates and the fortress and the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And then he says, and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now let's walk back through this one. Nehemiah had to know of the previous letter in Ezra. And so as he looked at that previous letter in Ezra, he says, I need letters. So he asked for letters. The first letters he asked for there is to the governor, to the governors beyond the river. Now we know from the Elephantine papyri in 407 BC that one of those governors beyond the river's name was Sanballat. We haven't been introduced to Sanballat yet, but we're going to in the verses in the very next message in the verses right after where we are. This is going to be one of the main characters that will have opposition to what he's trying to do. He doesn't want anybody looking out for the good of the people. And so here there's a letter that's going to be written to him where the king's going to say, let him through, give him safe passage. If there had been no letter, there would have been no wall. It took planning to think about what do I need? What's the strategy? He was playing chess, not checkers. He wasn't thinking one move ahead. He was thinking three moves ahead. And that's the way we should live our lives. We think multiple moves ahead. And so some deliberate, detailed planning here. If you're gonna have deliberate planning, it means hard work. It means thinking deeply. It means detailed preparation. This is what I see, this is the need, this is how we get there. All the steps before that need to be planned out. You don't jump ahead to the end, you make sure you're following all the steps. He says to the king, I need letters. I need letters to the governors. And then he says, I need a letter. I need a letter to Asaph. How did he know his name? Perhaps it was common knowledge. Perhaps this is no big deal. Perhaps he knew he was gonna need timber. And so he went and found out who the name was. The name Asaph means Yahweh has gathered. He's the keeper of the forest. So it was a Hebrew name. Perhaps there's something there that we should know. And he asked for supplies. I need timber for the gates. I need timber for the wall. They may have interspersed some wood in with the wall, but the wall would have been made of rock more so than wood for the fortress of the temple and for the house that I would occupy. How did he know about the house? He'd never been there before. Perhaps he asked those questions when he was talking to those who had given him the report. He thought, if I'm gonna go there, if I'm gonna help do this, I've gotta have a place to live. If I've gotta have a place to live, there needs to be a house. If there needs to be a house, it's probably not in good condition, so I'm gonna need some timber. He thought through all these things and in the one moment that he had, a quick moment, a spur of the moment opportunity, he said, these are the things I need. He knew off the top of his head, I need letters to the governor, I need letters for the wood, I'm gonna need wood for this, 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 and this. He was prepared. He knew 
knew the supplies. He knew the living situations. He didn't go on Google and Google things that I need to do to rebuild the walls and then print out a list of the blog. He had to sit down and think diligently about all of this. This is deliberate planning. This is detailed work. I think there's also an application for us here of how to serve unbelievers. So many of you are going to be in an environment where you're working, where you're serving, where you're reporting to somebody that's not a believer. You're going to be living out your faith in such a way that you're going to be representing the gospel to a group of people. Notice how Nehemiah here, representing a follower of Yahweh, representing them, what does he do? He's respectful. He's humble. He's wise. He's prepared. He demonstrates excellence in what he does. He didn't demonstrate arrogance or entitlement. He wasn't lazy. He had done the work. And so here there's a lesson for all of us that when we go before unbelievers, we should do so with excellence. And that excellence carries a testimony. But then notice lastly here what he says. And the king granted me what I asked for. Now, how would you tell the story? How would I tell the story? Man, let me tell you what happened. I did all of my homework. I had all of my ducks in a row. I had all of my points alliterated. I made sure I knew exactly what needed to happen. Man, I was on my game and I was spot on and the king asked me a question and I rattled it off just like this and the king was so impressed with my skill that the king said, I'll do all of it for you. Sound familiar? Does it sound like how we tell our high school hero stories? Does it sound how we talk about an achievement that we do now? I think there's a big lesson to learn about directed praise here from Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew in his heart, he knew the truth. The reason he got the response he received was because the good hand of my God was upon me. So what's the main point of our text? We come back around to the main point and then we're gonna walk through some application. The main idea is when God calls, God provides. If God's called you to go do something, God will provide. The key is, has God called? God has not called you to sing in heart song if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Just hasn't. God has not called you to be an engineer if you can't do math. He just hasn't. God has not called you to be a nurse if you can't stand the sight of blood. It's all about where God has called us. And so we need to make sure we pay attention to that. Dependent prayer, deliberate plan, and directed praise. Now let's walk through some application. We're going to walk through them just in those three. Dependent prayer. If it pleases the king. Oh, what a great question for us to ask. If it pleases the king, send me. You notice a problem. You notice an injustice. You notice something's wrong. You notice an area where the gospel is not. Instead of praying, God, would you send somebody else? Instead of praying, even perhaps sometimes, God, would you send me? Perhaps the prayer should be, God, why should I not go and help solve this problem? Why should I not be part of the solution? A prayer that you should pray upon graduation as you're looking at all the job opportunities. Why should you not look at the country and say, where are places in these churches? Oh, I've got an opportunity to go here. Well, there's a church plant this year. I can call that pastor pastor's trying to plant a church and I can go there and be somebody with a vocation that has a Bible minor that can walk alongside them, that can help plant a church in a place where God is not glorified to restore the glory of God. 
If it pleases the king, send me. This should be our prayer all the time. Lord, there's a problem in this earth. If it pleases the king, send me. Not send somebody else. Not take care of it. Lord, if it pleases you to send your servant to go do your work for your glory, send me. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer for all of us. So I would say to you by way of challenge this morning that you should serve an audience of one. If you serve an audience of one, you should not be afraid to fail. You should not be worried about the stress or the anxiety of you having to accomplish it. Think about all of the load that could have been on Nehemiah all at this point in time. But Nehemiah said, if it pleases the king, not the earthly king so much as the heavenly king, send me. So PhD stands for post hole digger. If you didn't know, that's what it stands for. So this morning, I want you to get in your mind and think of yourself, all of us, as just post hole diggers for the one true king. He says, you need a post hole right here. I start digging. He says, no, I need one over here. Okay, fine by me. I start digging. He says, you need one back here. That's not in a straight line. I don't care. You're the king. I start digging. It's not my job to sort it all out. It's, if, if, if I fail, it's okay. As long as I'm serving the one true king, a servant and a good steward and someone who's just doing exactly what I'm told. Now think about what he left. He left the comforts of the palace, the fine food, the wine, the safety. He went to a difficult assignment, a dangerous assignment in a place he had never lived or known or visited. But it pleased the king. So send me. Some of you have left a place and you have come to another place. You left a home and you came to Cedarville. You came to study. And you go, oh, I know what that's like. I know, I know, I know what that's like. But when we think about Nehemiah, he left and traveled a whole lot farther and to a place he couldn't easily get back, to a place that was going to be dangerous and a place that was broken down. So any anxiety that you have from leaving the comfort and the safety of mom and dad and home and coming to a place to study and refine your gifts, to be further trained, to go out and do great things for God. Imagine that 10 times, tenfold, because he's going into a place that's dangerous and a place that's not safe and the walls are broken down. And this place is incredibly safe. You leave your skateboards, you leave your bicycles, you don't lock them up, you go into chucks, you leave your phones down to save your seats or your wallets down. I see them and I think to myself, that's not smart, but it's Cedarville, it's okay. You're more worried about your seat than you are your stuff. Now remember, downtown Cedarville is not Cedarville. So don't leave your phone, your purse, your wallet laying to save your seat. Don't do that at the green. Nowhere else, all right? Don't get in that habit because it only works in Chucks. Nowhere else. And if you see any strangers in Chucks today, since this is going out online, look at them funny, all right? I'm just saying. Or ask them their name and whether they are. All right, let's move on to the second application here. Deliberate plan. A deliberate plan requires detailed preparation. Good stewards. So here's an application for us. Nehemiah set an example. He had great planning. He was deliberate. He was detailed. So I say to you, let's mimic that. Let's do the same thing. In our classes, detailed planning. You've got your syllabus. 
I know when my stuff is done. I'm going to put that on my calendar. I'm going to make sure I have it all done ahead of time. If I have to write a paper, I'm going to have my paper done ahead of time so I can go back and actually proofread the content that I've written for class, which is always a great thing because you notice words you left out or things that don't make any sense to you the second time. And if it doesn't make sense to the person who wrote it, it's probably not going to make sense to the person reading it. And so all of these are great things, deliberate, detailed planning. I've got a test. I'm going to block some time so I can study for the test. Studying for a test, good thing to do in leadership, in service. I want to be a leader, serve well. I want to be somebody that people trust, serve well with detailed preparation. You want people to trust you to do big things, do small things incredibly well. Make data-driven decisions. The king says, how long are you going to be gone? What are you going to need? What are you asking of me? His response, he tells him how long he's going to be gone. He tells him the letters. He tells him what he needs wood for. It was succinct. It wasn't three miles long. It wasn't a strategic plan that was 10 pages. But he told him right up front, here's what I need. So are you responsible? Do you answer your emails or your phone calls? Do you keep appointments? Do you show up on time? Can people trust you with things? Or do they give you things to do and they never happen? If you think things are too little for you and the little things are unimportant, chances are you do sloppy work and that's not what we see in Nehemiah. So what does scripture tell us about this? Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Serve well. Detailed preparation. Proverbs 24, 27 says, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. Get it all ready. Prepared. Ready to go. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ. So we should believe in deliberate planning, right alongside that, dependent praying. Directed praise. Who receives the glory? There's another narrative that could have gone here. Why did Artaxerxes want Nehemiah to go? Well, political situations in that time might have made it a good idea. The viceroy of Syria, a man by the name of Megabirus, led a revolt against Artaxerxes. He was forced into submission But between Syria and Egypt was this place called Judah. Oh, is that why it happened? Think about the credit. This happened because of my personality, my skill, my position, my way with words, my winsome attitude, my brilliance, my research, my ability, my compelling nature, my, 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 or this happens. Why did these good things happen? Somebody asked you, because the good hand of my God was upon me. Is that our response? Oh, it should be. Because see, we're not supposed to be the ones who receive the glory. We're supposed to be the ones that hold that mirror up, reflecting the glory back to the God who has given us all of those abilities. And when we hold that mirror up, reflecting that glory back to God, that's attractive to other believers. And that causes non-believers to wonder, why are they doing that? And so there's a gospel witness that goes forward. When you do the me, 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 Can I just be honest with you and say that that arrogance is not attractive at all? And the longer you're a Christian, that arrogance is even less attractive. And that arrogance leads to a pridefulness and it leads to an entitlement that then leads to a fall. Don't go with arrogance. Go with humility. The ax cannot boast of cutting down the tree. It's just an ax. It can do nothing without the woodsman. 
The hammer cannot boast of building the house. It's just a hammer. It can do nothing without the carpenter. The wrench cannot boast of fixing the car. It can do nothing without the mechanic. The brush cannot boast of its painting. It can do nothing without the artist. The piano cannot boast of the music. It can do nothing without the player. The bridge cannot boast of its own strength. It can do nothing without the engineer. And brothers and sisters, we cannot boast of anything that we do in this life because we can do nothing without the creator and the giver of good gifts. Are you incredibly smart? Thank the Lord for the intelligence that he has given you and use it as a good steward before God. Do you have an outgoing, winsome personality with an incredible sense of humor? Thank the Lord for the gift that he has given you and use it as a good servant before God. Whatever your gifts, whatever your abilities, recognize they are all good gifts from God above. Praise him for them, use them well, and reflect that glory back to God. Where do you direct the praise? The more successful you are, the greater the temptation to be prideful. The more people look and say, oh, oh, but nobody could have done this but you. Think about Nehemiah. Oh, nobody could have rebuilt the walls but you, Nehemiah. No, no, no. It's the good hand of my God that was upon me. He, he prepared all these things. He did all these things. He could do all these things with another person. He could do all these things with rocks. He could do all these things without anything. It's the good hand of my God that was upon me. So if you're sitting here this moment and you know in your own spirit there's a prideful arrogance, maybe today is the Lord saying to you, well, you better get rid of that. You better knock that off. Because if you don't, he will. Where do you direct the praise? Robert Murray McShane had a quote that I'll leave you with in closing. He says, I fear the love of applause. May God keep me from preaching myself instead of Christ crucified. When I take the praise, I'm a thief, stealing the praise from the place where it belongs. May God guard all of our hearts to fear the applause of men. May God keep us from preaching ourselves instead of Christ crucified. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example it is. We pray that you will help us to apply these things. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to be sensitive to where you're calling us because we know when you call, you provide. Lord, we pray that you will help us to make sure that we are dependent in our prayer, that we are detailed in our preparation. And Lord, that we direct the praise back to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you are dismissed.